Yeah. So all our listeners out there, if you if you're if you're into this kind of thing, or you just think you're a tough person, Google the Maltz Challenge, M A L T Z Challenge, in honor of Michael Maltz. See what the 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 uh, the parameters are of the exercises you have to do, and give it a shot. I mean, there's no even one of the best shape I was ever in my life. There's no way I could have completed that. Day, well, but. they also made the half malts challenge more, more for fat guys like us and old guys. <laughs> they, and now it's so cool, Morgan. You know what they do now? A lot of people they go there and they walk a little bit. They may do one push up. They don't even care. They're not doing the routine. They're there to support the men and women that are sacrificing their lives. So here's a tie into that. So I belonged uh, for a couple of years until they closed down to the Ashburn CrossFit gym. Um, yes. So uh, we did the Maltz challenge. We also did the Murph challenge, you know, thank for, you, which is not, uh, you. not you, the other Murph. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Ma- Michael, Murphy, yeah. Michael Murphy. Yeah. Michael Murphy. Yeah. Lieutenant Michael Murphy. And let me tell you, when you, when you say that it is challenging, I did, but you know what? It's one of those things. It's like a couple of us were like, fuck it. We don't care. I'm not going to get the time that you guys do, but we're doing everything. We did everything. We did the squats, awesome. we did the push-ups, the runs. Um, just, you know, it, it, but the whole thing about it was like I told one guy, one guy was complaining. I looked at him. I said, you know what's fortunate about you complaining? I said, you're alive to complain. Yeah, that's, that's right. exactly right. You know what? Uh, can I ask you a question there, Morgan, since you brought it up? So- if Steve Murphy had a challenge in honor of him, what would you be doing? Eating apples from West Virginia? Or what, what would you do? You'd be wearing free T-shirts, um, drinking <laughs> ginger ale. <laughs> no, yeah, you, it would be who can make the best moonshine. That'd be yeah, the challenge. That's good. That's good. I love it. And this is a free T-shirt, by the free way. T- it's another free T-shirt. University by the way, this is all, Bahama. as you can see, this is all Tommy Bahama. That's the only thing I pretty much own anymore. <laughs> Hey, and I just made a note here. Uh, you and I, uh, and Morgan, let's just say we're going to post a link to the Maltz Challenge yes, we are. Uh, on our homepage. So thank you, thank you very much, look, everybody. Hey, so one thing we're going to do, I just made a note of it, Derek. Um, you're, I'm going to talk to you. Uh, I'm working with the Virginia Association of Chiefs of Police. We just submitted a COPS grant for a new way to share publicly available information to help solve crime, generate leads. It's kind of what I talked to you about when you, me, and Murph went out to lunch that time. But yeah. I actually I actually just got a patent on it. So awesome. Uh, yeah, so we'll we'll talk later about that offline. Yes, and we'll that's great. Hey, but you know, one of the reasons we brought you on too, and Murph and I did a Patreon episode, and we had uh, Aaron Graham on too to talk about counterfeit medication, and that was a, that was well-received. Um, and, but one of the reasons we wanted to bring you on too was, uh, number one, so I could get a break from talking and, uh, number two. <laughs> that's good. Hey, but no, I, I will tell you, uh, seriously, it's like you and I did like, there's been several times I think you and I have done, have been on the same show or kind of back to back stuff. And this, the top, but you are the go-to person for so many people to talk about what's happening with fentanyl right now. And I want to, I want to get into that and talk about that for a couple of reasons. Number one, once I, once I really understood, once we had those good discussions with, uh, with Aaron and we started talking about the difference between ODs, overdoses and poisonings, which poisonings to me are criminal cases that need to be investigated. People need to be arrested and go to jail on but you've been the go-to guy about fentanyl. And I'll tell you what even made it really interesting having this discussion is we just had a guy on yesterday, Guy Hargraves, 
talking about the largest LSD operation ever taken down, which it came out of my home state of Kansas. Not only that, but Wamego was one of our uh, league schools. I've been to Wamego, been probably right by that missile silo. Didn't know it, you know, when I was in high school. And then the largest fentanyl bust at that time too came out of a little town called Goddard, Kansas, another place. But the guy that they arrested, uh, Picard, said he said he was prescient. He said years ago, years and years and years ago, that fentanyl was going to be a big issue. So let's talk about when did let's talk about with you now, because you have done this. Uh, real quick question: When did you retire from DEA? This will help book in the conversation. Right. So I retired July 31st, 2014, and I immediately started engaging in a series of different things, crime and terror. And so I started getting like I was on 60 Minutes for the Chapo Guzman case and started, started meeting some media personalities. And then, of course, we announced the Project Cassandra, uh, Hezbollah uh, and the cartels working together. So that got me a lot of exposure on national news with Fox. OK, but. This is the thing. I'd like to go through briefly the evolution of what I live with because I learned this on the fly. I didn't know this stuff. So very important to understand, and a lot of people don't know this. In 2006, when I was the head of the DEA Special Operations Division, we started having massive overdose deaths or poisonings, whatever you want to call them, in the Midwest, Chicago area of the country from what I heard about at the time, fentanyl. Now, I knew fentanyl was in the hospitals, but I had no idea it was on the streets of America. So in 2006, I got a contact with the DEA Chicago. My buddies out there, they had a really good case agent at the time uh, who worked the case to try to figure out where this fentanyl was coming from. So they identified a lab down in Mexico. They worked with the Mexicans, the special investigation unit down there. Long story short, they, they shut down the lab in Mexico. So this was like the first time that I was aware of the Mexican cartels getting involved with fentanyl or experimenting with it. Hundreds of people died. I don't remember the exact number, but then we stopped seeing fentanyl in America at that time. Then what happened was another groundbreaking event, 2007. There was $207 million in $100 bills and euros seized in Mexico City from a guy who was a Chinese chemical broker who was bringing in large amounts of precursors into Mexico and providing it to the cartels to make methamphetamine in the super labs. We started seeing larger seizures of uh, meth at the time. So this kind of opened up my eyes. Like if a chemical broker has $207 million in $100 bills, oh my God, this business is beyond what we ever thought. So then this is when it starts getting crazy. 2009, we start getting bombarded with what we call synthetic cannabinoids and synthetic cathinones, K2 spice and bath salts. I knew nothing about it, never heard of it. It was synthetic chemicals made in Wuhan-style labs in China. And we put teams of people together at the Special Operations Division to get with other agencies like Border Patrol, CBP, Homeland Security, FBI, everyone, to try to figure out, because we started seeing emergency room admissions, Poison control center calls. All these people were smoking this stuff, thinking they were smoking, you know, you know, marijuana, synthetic marijuana. They were smoking poisonous substances coming from labs in China. 
So what happened was- Hey, Derek, hold, hold on right there. I want to ask you about that too, because I know yeah. when you get rolling, I don't want to stop. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, the reason Wuhan's kind of important because the Wuhan Institute of Virology is where there's a lot of uh, suspicion around the leak of COVID came from because of the work they were doing on gain-of-function research. Exactly. That's another stuff. You said COVID-style, or you said Wuhan-style labs. What did you mean by Wuhan-style labs? Well, I meant that they were all run by these very professional chemists and you know, very experienced with making chemicals. And it's like 160,000 or more chemical companies in China. Chemical is known, I mean, China is known for the massive chemical supply around the world. And when I say Wuhan, I'm referring to what I've learned since then. At the time, I didn't know anything about Wuhan, but I later learned what was going on and I'll get to that point. But we started seeing this. We had to initiate two very successful operations at SOD. Operation Logjam was the first one, and then Project Synergy 1, 2, and I think 3, attacking this synthetic drug production in China that was inundating the streets of America, and they were selling this stuff in like these little bags, say Scooby-Doo Snacks, King Kong, all these exotic names and colorful packaging, and there were a lot of homeless using it, a lot of kids. So we had tremendous success, and we all learned a lot about this. But we also learned about this, Morgan, is that around 2012, because we put so much pressure on these organizations, we started seeing for the first time fentanyl coming out of some of these same locations with the same characters hitting the streets of America through the sales on the internet, the dog web, right? And we started seeing deaths in the Northeast, in Florida. And again, as the head of SOD, I had no idea what was going on. We had to figure it out. And then we started seeing the convergence of the Chinese criminals working again with the Mexican cartels. Now, they had always been working with them on the precursor chemicals uh, for methamphetamine, right? And the Mexican cartels weren't involved, as far as I know, with the synthetic drugs like K2 and Spice and bath salts. But... We started seeing the distribution of this new substance, fentanyl, mixed in heroin in the initial phases all over the country. So in 2014, we started, and a lot of people don't know this, so that's eight years ago, we started what we call Operation Deadly Merchant. And the purpose of that operation was to warn the Department of Justice, Homeland Security, and our law enforcement counterparts that this was something we've never seen coming before. We made this pamphlet. You could see it. Fentanyl threat overview. We handed it out to everyone out there. We, we briefed Eric Holder in 2014. This is something we've never seen. This is the perfect storm of, of craziness with the synthetic uh, chemicals made in labs in China that are hitting American streets and the cartels are involved. So anyway, flash forward, okay? This is all stuff I learned as the head of SOD on the fly and the great work out there in the field. Flash forward to, like, let's say 2017 timeframe. We started seeing a shift. When President Trump came on board, there was a lot of pressure put on China for the fentanyl analogs that were coming out of China. So we started seeing a shift where we started seeing pure fentanyl, 95% fentanyl for 5,000 a kilogram being sent from China directly to Mexico. And then we were like, oh, my God, this is scary because this is just going to be the perfect storm. And so the president had a very aggressive plan at the time to go after these Chinese or put the pressure on them. And they did. But all they did was 
shift the way they do business. And that's what criminals do, as you guys know. What they did was they started sending less fentanyl directly to America. They were sending it to Mexico to let the Mexican cartels be the proxies to destroy the American kids and families. Because remember, anybody that has any knowledge of the Communist Party of China, and I'm no expert on this, I've learned this, they have their unrestricted warfare. They're going to use all tools of national power to destroy their adversary. And what better way than to stabilize America by killing the kids, destroying the future leaders, take away the military leaders, the, the doctors, the nurses, the school bus drivers, the teachers. They are smart. This is all being calculated. And they're even smarter now because they're making it now like it's the cartels. But they're now providing all the precursor chemicals so the cartels can make the fentanyl in Mexico in these Sinaloa and CJNG, I'm sorry, Cartel Jalisco New Generation Labs in Mexico to destroy our kids. They, they are on a marketing plan now to drive addiction and drive profits. Now, let me just shift on this because I want you to understand this. Hey, hold so, on. Hold on one thing. You yes, mentioned sir. something too, because you're one of the few people I think you when you said unrestricted warfare, are you talking about the book that was written by the two colonels in the People's Liberation Army? Well, that's part of it, but there's a much deeper history, and I'm no expert, Morgan, but the Gordon Changs of the world and others that study this for a living, like you start listening to them and it makes common sense. Like they they wanted to figure out a way they can't come into our country with soldiers and start shooting up Americans. They can't drop bombs right now. I mean they can but they don't want to do it. They want to be smart about their plan. So this is a perfect plan. Remember, anybody in the DEA who worked in Afghanistan knows that the Afghans used to say, if we could sell heroin to the West, it's a jihad against the West. And we can make millions of dollars doing it. So it's a two for one special. That's what I've learned. Okay. And it's a brilliant plan. And I give them credit for the plan. And I'm disgusted on the lack of response of the US government. We could talk about that in a second. So what happens is, as this is going on, okay, I start putting this out on national news media as early as 2008, when I started having the platform to do it. And I, you could go back to my, you could go to my YouTube channel, you could watch all these videos, I'm not making this up. I was talking about China, I was talking about the cartels, the death to the kids for, for several years now. What happens is, I do a presentation a couple of years ago in Florida, the Palm Beach World Affairs Council gets me to come down and talk about transnational crime and stuff. I do it. Two days later, I get a call from a mother up in Connecticut, Lisa Dean. Mr. Maltz, my brother Phil was at your presentation. I need to talk to you. My son, Joseph Dean, died 23 years old. He was a lacrosse player. He took fentanyl. He died. I have a, a nonprofit up here. I'm putting billboards up. I need to talk to you. You have to get involved with the parents. Lost voices of fentanyl. I said, what the hell is lost voices of fentanyl? So I go online. It's a Facebook group, April Babcock from Baltimore. Her son died, Austin, at 25 from fentanyl. She stood up the group for one purpose, to do a rally, to see who would be interested in doing a rally in front of the Chinese embassy in Washington, D.C. last summer. So I started meeting these people, listening to their stories, and my heart was just bleeding. I was insane. So that's why I started this project. You can't see it on this podcast, but I started making every day these collages with these dead kids. I had the PowerPoint template. I get all these photographs, put them in there, blah, 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 blah. It became an emotional, overwhelming project for me because then I talked to the parents and heard their stories. 
Many of these kids, first-time users, their buddy gives them a pill, a Percocet pill, an Adderall pill. But it's not Adderall. It's not Percocet. It's deadly fentanyl. And they, they find the kids blue in the bedrooms. And these are, these are parents all over America. So I started becoming very obsessed with supporting them. As the families have said, I have now emerged as the voice of the voiceless. Because my goal at that point in time was to do everything in my power to use my platform, my network, to get the attention to these parents so we could save lives. That's been my goal. I'm not a Fox contributor. I'm not a Newsmax contributor. I do not get paid to do this. I have a good job with a great company that allows me to support the American law enforcement community and support these men and women and also the families that are losing their beautiful kids that have no future and they're destroying our communities. So as a result, my goal was, let me get on on Fox News, Newsmax, whatever uh, network would talk to me, because I took the approach, this is not a red or a blue issue. This is a red, white, and blue issue. Americans have to unite. It's one issue that should be bipartisan, and I don't understand why it's still, you know, a political thing. But anyway, I do understand that. We could talk about that later. But here's the thing. I started getting on a roll, and I made a commitment. My goal was not to listen to me on national news. I want the families on national news. I want their stories being told. So one of my biggest achievements is now when you see all these families, most of them, I'm working with the bookers of these national news stories, recommending them to be on the shows so the American public can hear what's really happening to our colleagues and, and, and beautiful families around America. So I am now, as you can see, I'm very intense on this. What was great, though, I got to tell you this funny story, and Murph could appreciate this. So my goal with these charts, I made 25 of them. It became an overwhelming experience, emotional roller coaster for me, because I'd routinely get calls. Hey, Mr. Maltz, I sent you the photo, and I don't know if my little Johnny's on your board. And I'm like, what's the name? And I'm looking through this, and I'm starting to see I have multiple kids on my charts, because I didn't organize this properly, Morgan. This would never happen with a guy like you. I didn't make a spreadsheet and keep the names and the date of births and the cities and states, and I didn't even get the waivers and the releases. So I'm on Fox News putting up these things, and they're going, Mr. Maltz, you know, we can't do that. Like, you know, it could have been lawsuits and stuff, but I knew every family was applauding the efforts to get the word out. So here's what happens. Virginia Krieger, who's one of the other moms who's got a beautiful story with her daughter Tiffany, uh, you know, what she's done for her daughter since then, and she then became a co-partner with April Babcock on Lost Voices of Fentanyl. So Virginia, in a very nice way, says, Derek, we can't thank you enough. You've done tremendous work, but we're going to take the collage project into a new level now. And I was like, <laughs> I was so happy because I couldn't take it anymore, but I didn't want to stop doing it. Right. So now they organize it in a professional way, spreadsheets, name, releases, so now what they've done, and I can send them to you guys so you see them, they make these charts where they say, they basically say uh, the name of the kid, that, and you see it right here, I have them here in my book. The name here, it starts with beautiful Tiffany on the end here, and then Austin, April's kid. It says the name and the age. And you can see 13, 15. So now we're up to 21 of these things. They cannot keep up with it. 
It's madness. So the family's got this project, and we did the rally in front of the Chinese embassy. And unfortunately, it was three days after or four days after the Afghan disaster. So I was able to get Newsmax on the scene. Well, they weren't on the scene. I was on the scene. They had me on my Skype, right? And they wanted to talk to me about Afghanistan. So I said, thank you for bringing up Afghanistan. My heart goes out for the 13 men and women and their families that just died. My brother came back in a body bag, but I want to shift the story a second. What about the support to these men and women and these families here in front of the Chinese embassy? The Chinese are working with the cartels, destroying our country, and we need support here. Anyway, long story short, after that whole thing went down, there was like 40 states represented for that one. April Babcock's group started growing so rapidly. There's about 19,000 members of Lost Voices of Fentanyl, and I highly recommend if you want, just go on there. It's a public group and just check it out. There's one horrific story after another, and this is my life. So I will tell you one thing more about the two things more. One, September 17th is the rally in Washington, D.C. All the families are coming from around the country. We're going to be marching to the White House. We're going to have the banners up there on the, on the lawn. There's going to be speakers. I'm one of the speakers. But here's what I'll tell you, that the families are super angry because they feel that at the bare minimum, we should be educating Americans about this. This is something we've never seen. It's not a drug overdose crisis. It's a mass poisoning crisis like we've never seen. Hundreds of thousands are dead. 300 a day are dying. And the statistics are underreported. But what's really sad and what I do for my own insanity, my, my own sanity, and I'm going to send you guys this thing because I think you'll appreciate it. What keeps me fired up every day. I'm a visual guy, as Murphy knows. I used to do PowerPoints. I use 120 slides for a 10-minute PowerPoint. And these people <laughs> no, go crazy. That's true. Yeah. So, 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 Morgan, check this out. I keep, I, every day of the week, I get these amazing messages from family members thanking me and what I do. And they send me pictures of their kids. Mr. Maltz, I, you can't save my son, but we know what you're doing every day to help us. And we can't, we can't thank you enough. You know what that does for me, Morgan? It keeps me very focused and very, very, you know, passionate about I got to continue on until they get the proper recognition and we start saving lives. So it's amazing. I going back to L.A. for the Dr. Phil second uh, season because I impacted him so much. He even said, Derek, I've let down my listeners and my viewers because I had no idea what's going on with this crisis and I need to step up my game. So Dr. Phil is a man of his word, and he's now taking this one on. He's going to try to get me some celebrities, influences, and you know, role models, because the kids in America are not listening to these podcasts that we're on. They're not listening to the main street media. They're not watching cable news. What they're doing is spending their whole day on social media apps, and I don't have multi-millions of followers. They're not going to follow me. I'm an old guy. You got to follow LeBron James or Tom Brady one of these celebrities or influences on social media, and they have to start putting the message out. But here's the problem. None of them want to do it for two reasons. They don't understand it. They don't want to attach themselves to the stigma of the drug crisis because a lot of their buddies are smoking marijuana and they don't want to be that guy. The second thing is, I can almost guarantee you this, and this is my challenge, and if you guys have any ideas on this, please run with it because you got huge networks. My challenge is, how can I get them to understand that this is not a drug crisis? This is the destruction of America and the poisoning of our kids. Because there's no athlete in America 
or maybe very few that wouldn't want to help the kids survive and push out social media messages. It's amazing. I can't solve that problem, but it's driving me nuts. And I'm trying hard. I'll tell you one quick story. There's a famous hockey player who played on the Bruins, Jimmy Hayes. He died from a fentanyl overdose with cocaine, a fentanyl poisoning. His wife was shocked. The headline story is wife of Jimmy Hayes shocked when she found out the autopsy results. So his brother, Kevin Hayes, plays for the Philadelphia Flyers. So I was hoping I could get them a Jimmy, Jimmy's brother on board to at least speak about this. And I'm waiting now. I'm working with his agent up in Boston. I'm waiting for the final answer. But it's not going to surprise me if I'm told, no, we're not interested. It's a privacy issue, which I respect. I don't want to violate anyone's privacy. I know what it's like. You lose a loved one. But I'm just looking for help. I'm desperately looking for that person. If I could speak to Tom Brady, I sit there on my phone every day sending direct messages to all of these guys. I don't get the response because they probably think, who's this lunatic? You know, I don't want to get involved with the drug stuff. No, you could be a hero if you're saving kids' lives. Anyway, if you change your profile picture and show some cleavage, you'll get the attention of some of those guys. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I mean, it's funny, but so sad. And I can't tell you, one of my neighbors here used to see every week the, uh, you know, the news media truck on my driveway. He'd watch me every day and he came over. He's a marketing guy. He said, Derek, I got to help you out. We got to get this out there. So he created a three minute video. Very well done, except it's too long. Nobody's going to watch it because they don't have the attention span. But in the beginning of the video, it kind of calls out celebrities, influencers, and athletes. Would you send a post if you could save a life? If it only took you a couple of seconds to save a po- send out a post, would you do it? And, and he's trying to be creative, and I appreciate his support. But we're dealing with this, this stigma of the drug crisis. And this is not a drug crisis. This is the Mexican cartels making billions marketing colorful drugs to our kids now they look like sweet tarts and and you know all kinds of candy that they have blocks of colored fentanyl now like looks like chalk that the kids write on the on the on the floors we have millions and millions of these pills being seized the dea administrator puts out announcements all the time they seized 20 million pills last year alone the analysis of the lab has revealed 40 percent of the pills that they analyze have a potentially lethal dose of fentanyl the every single day now you're reading about big seizure. They hit a tractor trailer in Nogales last week, Sinaloa cartel load of uh, 1.6 million pills. Los Angeles DEA, 1 million pills last month. They had a guy come into the port of entry in Nogales with his crutches, 14,000 pills in the crutches. You had the first, you have the first uh, week of uh, August, another 1.1 million pills. DEA in Phoenix sees 12 million pills last year. We're being bombarded, chemical weapon, attack. I mean, I'm no genius, Morgan. I don't have your IQ, but I will tell you this, bro. And I said this today on national news. I said the following. If Al-Qaeda and ISIS had a chemical weapon or a biological weapon lab in Mexico, would we sit back and wait for them to kill our country? And the answer is no. So why are we sitting back? And I highly recommend it. An operation warp speed type of operation, whole of government approach to destroy those labs immediately with or without the Mexicans. I'm not looking for a ground war. I'm not looking to put men and women on the ground with machine guns killing people. No, 
I want sophisticated technology to destroy the labs, and I want it done now. And that's the only way because this is there's too much being produced now. There's too much already here. So we have to do damage control. And we have the men and women in our military and intelligence community, if they're given the orders, they could do it. Bill Barr recently said they need to be treated like ISIS terrorists because that's what they are. And this is disgusting. I could go on all day about this. Well, you can make presidential findings if you guys go back to remember the old Tom Clancy book, um, Clear and Present Danger. Yes. We use that. I, I have a video I made on that exact point. It's an edited video when they were blowing up the planes down there. It was on the movie. They're blowing up the planes. The CIA is putting like explosives on the planes before they take off. Yeah. So, I mean, there's some things you could do policy wise um, to make these things happen. So talk a little bit more about that. You know, we talk about the number of deaths. I mean, obviously, the fentanyl poisonings and there are some overdose too. some people who intentionally take fentanyl. Absolutely. Those are but there's a, a whole lot more poisonings. But for, we, we dealt with COVID, and COVID obviously overshadowed the tremendous loss of life because it was there, but the same thing with fentanyl. But give us some numbers too, Derek, that you know of lately. I mean, what's it look like in terms of the number of people dying from okay. fentanyl? A couple of good numbers right off the bat. I said this also on the national news stories this week, okay? In San Diego, over the last five years, 2016, 2021, they have seen a 2,375% increase in fentanyl-related deaths. In the state of California, in the same time frame, 2,200% uh, increase in fentanyl-related deaths. The coroner's office in Ohio, Franklin County, Ohio, just put out numbers suggesting that 89% of the drug deaths are fentanyl-related. So the bureaucrats in Washington will use the number 66%. 60, 70%. Okay, fine. But the numbers are not right. They're not accurate. During COVID, every single night, the TV would say COVID cases, COVID deaths. In the fentanyl crisis, they're not properly reporting. Actually, the director of CDC just fell on the sword recently and told the world that she's got to jack up the CDC because they're not doing their job. They're not living up to the standards. And the Families Against Fentanyl wrote a letter to them that they're very disappointed that they can't keep timely and accurate statistics on the fentanyl deaths. If I had my way, if I was the president of the United States today, I would be mandating every day of the week, PSAs on primetime TV, recruitment of athletes, influencers, and at the White House, I want them all there. I want to talk to them. And the third thing is that I am going to make sure my education department is changing curriculum to teach kids that this is something we've never seen in the history of this country to start putting it on steroids to get the messages out. And right now, none of that really is happening. There's a lot of political talk, but there's no action. And the kids are dying at record levels. And this is not anything we've ever seen. There's no terrorist organization in the history of America that has ever killed this amount of kids, ever. So what are we doing? I testified in 2000, I think 18, with Sarah Carter from Fox News and one of the mothers in Ohio court that we need to declare the Mexican cartels as terrorists. And the Ohio court, the Congress, I'm sorry, Senate and the House, they voted almost unanimously in favor of doing this because Ohio is getting destroyed. But they don't have the ability to declare the cartels as terrorists. The State Department does. Well, 
when that information got to the White House and got to the bureaucrats in Washington, they convinced President Trump it was too aggressive, can't do it, blah, blah, blah. And President Trump wanted to do it. He was headline news repeatedly, repeatedly, but they convinced him it was too aggressive, it wasn't the right way to go. It would impact our relations with Mexico. And now you got the former attorney general being interviewed all these years later that they should be treated as ISIS terrorists. Wait a minute. It's going to ruin our relationships with Mexico because of the cartels, because of uh, China. They're killing a, over 100,000 Americans each year. I mean, exactly which part of this relationship do I want to keep in place? Right. And Morgan, don't ever forget, and I know you didn't forget this, and Murphy certainly didn't forget this because he worked on the front lines in Colombia and knows this very well, better than I do. And that is, they're on the payroll of the cartels. Look at the DEA recently just arrested the former Secretary of Defense of Mexico, and he was released. That's another whole story. They have the former public security secretary in jail in America. They took the president of Honduras out of out of Honduras. He's in jail in New York. His brother, Tony Hernandez, the congressman, is serving like life sentences because he was working on a 185 kilo cocaine conspiracy with Chapo Guzman and the Sinaloa cartel. So these leadership people in Mexico and Central America, they're working with the cartels and they, they know that it helps their economy if the cartels are spending all this money in their countries. And the poor people down there, they don't see any of this money. And that's another thing that pisses me off when we talk about the root causes of the illegal migration. And then we want to keep throwing money to El Salvador, Honduras, and all these countries down there in Mexico. Well, they got to be held accountable for results. The money's not going to the poor people. The money's going to the politicians. Well, it, right. it's that level of corruption, Murph. You know, you know, I can't think of how many people we've talked to about this. It's like, if you want to solve, solve, how do you solve the issue of corruption so that you can really start solving these other issues? You can have all the great plans you want, the policies you want, but if somebody is on somebody else's payroll and that payroll says, we don't like what you're doing, these guys have two choices. They can continue to, to take the money and live, or they can do the right thing and die. And that's what happens is that, exactly. you, know, you know what happens? Block yeah. for Obama. I love it. I'm glad you said that because I was going to ask Murph with the narco show. I mean, obviously, that's a big part of it. You know, you have no choice. You got to you got to work with them or you're going to die. Right. You know, and, and you're talking about getting the word out. Pre-COVID, Javier and I worked with uh, a group, Partnership for Safe Medicines, which does not represent it's a lobbyist group, but it does not represent big pharma. It represents like the pharmacists themselves, the CVS, the Walgreens, those type of organizations. So the first time we went to Capitol Hill, we spoke to the House side, uh, the senior staffers, and then the next year we went back and did the uh, 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 Senate side. And then also one of those years, we went and spoke to the American Legislative Exchange Conference, which had legislators from all 50 states at this huge party, I mean, conference they had down in, in Texas. It was amazing how we got up and did a little 20, 30-minute presentation, how many congressmen, legislators... All of those folks, all of our politicians coming up afterwards saying, we had no idea about counterfeit exactly. medication. Exactly. We had no Murph. idea about fentanyl. And, and you, you're talking about getting the word. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Derek. You're talking about getting the word out. And I'm, I've got on my phone here. So I live in Orange County. I live in Orlando, Florida, which is Orange County, Florida. And my utility bill two months ago, and I'm holding this up so you can see it. It's the one pill can kill flyer from DEA. 
And it was simple as they put the Orange County Drug Free Coalition put their emblem on there with 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 the agreement of DEA. And they're, it's as simple as putting it in your utility bill because we all get those freaking bills and you see it. Yeah. And so Connie That's and I, awesome. gone, we've gone to the movie theater here uh, out close to where we live. Uh, in the We've been twice actually in the last month or so, which is, I can't remember the last time I went to a movie. But anyway, you get there early to get your popcorn, your sodas, get your good seat and everything. And you're watching all the previews for the mo- movies to come. And you know what's up on the screen? That same blo- uh, uh, flyer there, One Pill Can Kill from DEA. And it's it's little simple things like yeah. that where you're slowly getting the word out just yes. to try to educate the public. It exactly. can be really simple. How do you get to the kids though? Well, let me. Well, how do you, that, you're right. How That's do you the key. Because the, the kids are the ones taking the pills. The parents got to be aware of it, exactly. right? How do we get to the kids? What's the medium? Because you know what I don't want to use. So many kids are on TikTok, but who is TikTok run by right. and manipulated by? It's run by the Chinese. Exactly. Yeah. Well, they also use Instagram. And the reels now, you can push out a lot of stuff, and a lot of the athletes are doing that. But the thing is, is like, Murph, I'm glad you brought up the one pill can kill because the DEA administrator, as a new administrator, has taken this mission on to get the messaging out. Unfortunately, the White House is not doing that, and they should be doing it because they have the resources to do it. DEA's done a phenomenal job. The administrator's been all over the national news and all the different networks, cable news, mainstream media. And yes, it is definitely making a difference. They also, I worked with them because we wanted to bring the families into DEA headquarters and they started the family summit first ever. They brought in all these family groups that I highly recommended a lot of the groups and they all went there and they told their stories and DEA listened to them and provided them some support. And then they created the first ever Faces of Fentanyl. So they used my photographs from Virginia Krieger and April Babcock, Law Sources of Fentanyl, and have a beautiful museum exhibit. And it's just going to grow and continue. So the DEA is doing their thing, but the DEA can't do it alone. And you need the marketing machine of the U.S. government and the resources to start getting the old public service announcements out. But again, Morgan, to your point and what I brought up, we could do this all day long. But if it's not getting to the kids, we're failing. And right now, that's the challenge of the day. If I was going to the White House to make recommendations today, besides blowing up the labs, well, what I what I said today is this is what I would do. State Department, DEA, FBI, Homeland Security, CBP, let's go to Mexico and put it on the table and tell them we're here because our kids are dying at record levels and you guys in Mexico have to be our partners and we have to go do this and how are we going to do it? And if you don't do it, we're going to be forced to put American kids first and do what we got to do. So here's the warning, Mexico. I don't see that happening currently, but that would be my goal. But the second thing would be Department of Education, ONDCP, what are we doing to immediately blitz the American public and the kids specifically on these messaging ads, these campaigns? I would hold the head of ONDCP, the drug czar, accountable to recruit the highest profile people he can recruit, get them into Washington, get them to the White House, and we're going to have a press conference. And then we're going to get it to the schools and we put it on steroids. And overnight, we'd make a difference and we'd save lives. But if you don't get the messages to the kids, it's a waste of time. It's, that's very true. Very true. Your, you, you know what? Look back at 9-11, how that galvanized Americans to come together because we had an attack on our soil. And what we had over 5,000 people killed, I believe it was, if I remember correctly, in three attacks. And then, Morgan, you're muted there, buddy. A little over 3,000. A little over 3,000. But here we are. We're getting attacked by the Chinese and the Mexicans on a daily basis. We're seeing over 100,000 deaths 
on fentanyl and, and opioids, overdose, overdose deaths or poisoning deaths, whichever you prefer to call it, it's both. And why are we not galvanized now? That's a hell of a lot more than 3,000 people. We're having 30 to 32 9-11s every year in the United States from fentanyl poisonings and fentanyl yep. deaths. And you go, what, what would it take? What would it take? What would it take to get their attention? So that, that loud sound is Derek. He's in his shorts, no shoes, no socks, as he was just <laughs> on national TV earlier. So I do this routinely, and go. I'm doing everything I can do to try to bring some common sense to people that they can understand. So this is 300 grams of salt in a bag. It's legitimately salt. And I always say, and I said it on national TV multiple times, if this was fentanyl, it could potentially kill 150,000 people. So people go, oh my God, that's like a chemical weapon. No shit. That's why the Families Against Fentanyl have been pushing a resolution in Congress to designate fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction, because that's what it is. The good news is, is we, we finally got a bipartisan uh, agreement between Lauren Boebert from Colorado, Tim Ryan from Ohio, that they believe that this is a legitimate thing. So we haven't seen bipartisan agreements like this. I also take out routinely, I do presentations around the country to law enforcement. I go over, I take a sweet and low packet, I rip it open, I put it on my hand and say, this is one gram. This could kill mass amounts, 500 people. All right. One gram, because it only takes two milligrams, the equivalent of like four grains of salt to kill an adult, a person, right? A kid. And unfortunately, we have to do a better job at the messaging. And that's why I was really pushing hard for a while. Just so you guys know, when you use the word overdose, the people perceive that as, OK, Murphy was a drug user. His parents didn't look over him. He deserved what he got. Life goes on. It's not my problem because my kid's not using drugs. Okay? That's the reality. Perception's reality. If you say Murphy was poisoned, the average person is going to go, wait a minute. He was what? He was poisoned? What does that mean? Well, the illicit drug supply is tainted with poisonous fentanyl, killing at historic levels. And by the way, it's not just in pills. It's in methamphetamine, it's in cocaine, and it's in even marijuana. And it's in heroin, of course. That being said, that's going to get them to better understand what the real issue is. And that's what we're dealing with, Morgan and Steve. We're dealing with the lack of knowledge. And what you said before was brilliant because I deal with the families. And you know what the most popular uh, you know, conversation is? Mr. Maltz, I only wish I could have got the warning about this fentanyl, I had no idea fentanyl was in cocaine. Yeah, my my kid was a party kid. He was out with his friends. They were recreational cocaine users. Cocaine normally ain't going to kill you. I know it's not a good thing to do. I'm not advocating cocaine use. But if I would have known fentanyl was in cocaine, I would have warned them. And that kills me because that's the simplest thing. And that's where the government is failing. And I'm not being political. It's just that that's where they're failing is simple things that could be done that they're not doing. You know, everybody uh, makes fun of Nancy Reagan when they came out with the Just Say No campaign. But you know what? It was effective because everybody knows what Just Say No was about. Right. And you know what, Murph? I'm glad you brought that up because I use another technique which has not worked successfully, but it has worked in, in, in many ways. So Ronald Reagan had a saying, if you can't get him to see the light, make him feel the heat. 
So my other goal, and I've been pretty good at this recently, whether I'm in Congress, whether I'm doing press conferences, whether I'm in law enforcement or national news or local news or podcasts, I always say that if you want to be the DHS secretary, the DEA administrator, the attorney general, the vice president, the president, it comes with a big responsibility. And protecting the American public is really important. If you don't want that responsibility, do, do not take the job. But if we know you're not doing your job, you're going to feel the heat. It's like the hot potato game when we were kids, right? You, wrote, you throw the hot potato around and then the song goes off. If you're holding the hot potato, you lose, right? Well, I'm going to put that damn hot potato in every one of the bureaucrats' laps, and I will do anything in my power because my goal is not myself. It's to save lives. And that's kind of what we're trying to do. And so going back to the original topics we were talking about, I feel right now that I'm in the place that I need to be with my passion, with my network, with my experience in law enforcement and interagency cooperation and and being involved in whole of government uh, law enforcement operations. I feel we can apply those principles to attack this crisis. And it's not it's not a losing battle, but it is if we have no sense of urgency and we don't understand what we're dealing with. So here's let's put this in perspective for a second, too. If you were to take the number of gun deaths per year, the number of traffic accidents per year fatalities and combine them together, you would still not equal the number in one year of the people who die from fentanyl poisoning. Right. And then I use the one all the time, Morgan, again, for the same reason. If you took the 3,000 dead on 9-11, if you took the 7,000 roughly dead in Iraq and Afghanistan with the, with the U.S. service personnel, that's 10,000. And we've spent trillions of dollars, uh, you know, for all these years trying to keep the country safe. But if you look at just this year alone, 295 dead a day, I'm sorry, 2,069 a week, 89.68 a month that are dying. Okay, so we're losing almost in one month what we lost in 9-11 and those conflicts. Okay. And it's amazing to me that if you if you peel back the onion and you understand why this is happening, I didn't go to MIT or Harvard, and I don't have a master's degree, but a third grader can understand that China wants to destroy their adversary, the cartels want to make money. And by the way, one thing we didn't even talk about, which is very important to this topic, is the money laundering service services now that are provided by the Mexican cartels. So they have Chinese students all over America right now on visas, going to school, very educated. They're probably, you know, earning tremendous, you know, graduate degrees and stuff like that, pre-med. But they're running around during the day and during the weekend, picking up millions and millions of dollars of cartel money. And they're collecting this cash and they're laundering this cash. The Chinese brokers are in Mexico. They're giving the orders to the kids to pick up the money. They have codes, then they use WeChat Pay, they use banking apps in China, and they move the money and they get the, uh, the, the, uh, the goods purchased over in China. They send the goods to Mexico, they sell the goods for three times the money, trade-based money laundering on steroids. And the sad part is U.S. law enforcement, because of our antiquated laws and policies, can't infiltrate the banking apps of China and can't infiltrate even the encrypted apps that they're using to do this business. And we don't have enough Chinese speaking, you know, law enforcement offices, and we don't have the vast amount of informants out there to properly infiltrate them. 
And they're geniuses. They're way more sophisticated than anything we've ever seen. So here's the bottom line. Think about it like this. The cartels cannot produce the poison without the chemicals coming from China and without the money to sustain the business operations and the demand. So who's providing the two critical components of the problem? China. So it seems pretty simple to me that you got to deal with the cartels and you got to deal with China. So what are we doing right now? And I believe not being political because of the uh, issues with the politics on the southern border. We're being invaded by over 150 countries. They're all over our cities now. The crime's escalating everywhere. We have no idea who we're letting in because there's, there's literally, you know, about a million or more known gotaways since President Biden has been in office. And those are people that we have no idea who they are, where they're going, what they're here for, what their purpose is. And they could be planning the biggest terrorist attack we've ever seen. And we wouldn't even know it because we don't know where they are and who they are. And we have all that stuff going on where the current administration believes having a wide open border is a, is a good thing to do. Now, I have empathy and sympathy to these poor, awesome families in El Salvador and Guatemala and Honduras and Mexico. I have nothing against any of these people. I love immigration, but you have to have a system. Like Tom Holman says, he's a friend of mine, the former ICE director. He says, it's now legal to be illegally here in America. So once again, we're sending mixed messages to the public. It's like yesterday, the White House secretary was on talking about securing the border is a priority. Securing the border is a priority for the current administration. We also have, obviously, the Secretary of Homeland Security saying he has operational control of the border. Now that is that is the biggest lie I've heard on television, right. and I'm not talking about guys being operational control is a term of art. It means something yes. very specific, exactly. And when you have documented people on the terrorist watch list, and these are the ones we catch. These are the ones we catch. Yeah, coming across, you've got MS-13 members who are wanted for multiple homicides, multiple sexual assaults and rapes coming across the border. You don't have operational control when as many people are as getting away or maybe even more than the ones we're catching. So again, some folks out there are going to go, hey, you're getting political. No, let's just talk facts for a second. And that's why I was saying when you add those numbers up, we have such an infrastructure and such a mechanism around dealing with traffic fatalities, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. They exist for 48,000 deaths a year. You've got people that are on both sides of the gun issue. They, some want more gun control. Some people want less. Uh, we're not talking about where you come down on, but think about the amount of money being spent on that for around 16,000 deaths a year. I'm not minimizing the number of deaths, but here's the difference. When Uvalde happened, and let me tell you what, you, again, you talk about red flags there, things that we could do better, but when Uvalde happened, 17 people, if 17 kids died in 17 separate cities, it doesn't make the news. When If 295 kids were to be in a school and die all at the same time, there would be action demanded. People would say, why aren't you doing something about this? But yet we can have 295 kids die all around the United States, and it doesn't raise the red flag. Why? Because the media is used to covering things that are sensational, that if it bleeds, it leads. And you, Derek, you know and I know this because we've been doing stuff with the national media for years you know, over a decade, 15 years now, they look at it because it's scope, frequency, and reach. 
you know, does it all happen in the same place at the same time? If it doesn't and it's spread out, it's very hard for them to make a story about it. And that's been part of the challenge too. Like say you want to change the narrative. You also have to change the media coverage about this. In other words, they were showing the number, they were showing the faces of the soldiers who were being killed when we did uh, Operation Desert Shield, Operation Desert Storm, you know, the first Gulf War, the second Gulf War. Where are the faces? Like you say, why aren't they covering and putting up the faces? Today, Walter Cronkite, I remember when my dad was a World War II and a Vietnam vet. He was in Vietnam. Every day, Walter Cronkite on the news talked about the number of killed in action, the number of missing in action, the number of wounded. We had those stats every day. Where are the stats daily to show here's the number of poisonings, here's the number of people dying, here's the number of ODs, you know, or people going to the hospital for this stuff? Because we lack the visibility, that's what's going to drive the conversation. Changing how the media reports on it will then get Congress involved, I think, and the players involved. But until until your point, Derek, what is perceived as real, until they perceive it's a problem, they won't believe it's a problem. Right. So I, I did something else this week. And, I, and again, not to be political, but I brought up a very good question. Joe Biden was in Pennsylvania. President Biden was talking about, you know, fentanyl killing our kids. And he seemed very passionate during this political speech. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. And so when the families um, are down there rallying on September 17th, they're going right outside his house, right? We're going to the White House. So if he really cared about the families and the deaths of these kids, come out and talk to the families. And if you can't do it because your schedule or a security risk or whatever, set up a meeting like the DEA did. Bring families from around the country to come into the White House Tell the story so you could better understand what the issues are and maybe then give you more information to make the best decisions to save lives. Because I seriously doubt my opinion, it's just an opinion, and I'm trying to give President Biden the benefit of the doubt. I seriously doubt he would want to see all these kids dying. I don't think that's really what's going on. And if he really truly understood the magnitude by listening to the families, then maybe at least they would come up with different approaches than what they have now. And again, I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt, but let's not forget the fentanyl poisoning crisis in America, from my perspective as the head of the Special Operations Division, started during President Obama's first term when Joe Biden was the vice president. So that's a fact. Like Morgan says, like, okay, but there's plenty of blame. This is not just blame on President Obama and Joe Biden. There's plenty of blame on all these bureaucrats that didn't take care of business. And I doubt that President Obama, I doubt that President Trump, and I doubt that President Biden would want to see all these kids dying from poison coming from Mexico when China's behind the scenes. I seriously doubt that. I can't accept that they'd want to see that. Yeah. So it boils down to is how do we change it? And that's, I think we change it by like stuff that you're doing. Look, dude, the way that you're relentless about this and you go, I mean, you've got more energy than me and Murph combined this morning. And uh, I feel pretty good. I've had three cups of coffee. I got a lot of caffeine, but it's just, it, it's great to watch this drive you because this is when we had Aaron Graham on, we got so many people responding to that because they did not know about pharmacy.safe, that they could go to a, a, an online place and see, hey, are, are my prescriptions legit? Pro tip, folks, uh, shocker for you guys, there is no such thing as an online Canadian pharmacy. As Aaron says, that's all, it's all bullshit, right? But I, you know, but Derek, it, it comes down to, um, you've testified before Congress, Murph, I know you have, I have. We all testify, everybody gives it lip service, they feel good for five minutes, 
It's the follow through. It's not it's not the hearings. The hearings are basically just a show. You know, it, the real work has to get done behind the scenes. And and until you get staffers, until you get caucuses, until you get, like you say, bipartisan representation, at some point, they've got to change how they refer to this. They can't just refer to this as a crisis. This needs to be – this is as close to an act of war as anything we've had. Exactly. This is the new war. This is the new war for in 2022. One thing I will tell you, which is actually kind of funny, and I think you'll appreciate it. Murph will appreciate it because he knows my sense of humor. One of my favorite titles that I had at SOD is when they called me Sack Whack-A-Mole. Anybody that has ever played the Whack-A-Mole game knows how it works. You hit the whack the mole down, two pop up. You hit two, four pop up. You hit five, ten pop up. That's me right now because they can say what they want. They can try to you know hide what I say. They can suppress me on Twitter and other social media. I don't care because I'm going to continue to support those families. And if we continue to get more believers and more great Americans to understand what the issue is, because this will not be solved by law enforcement alone. This will not be solved by, you know, any one agency. It's a, it's really like a whole of not just government approach. It's a whole of America approach. It's something we've never seen. We need public and private partnerships. Let me go back to something that we, we totally blew over, which I'm really passionate about, because it's another part of this whole problem we have. Let's never forget about the corporate cartels in big pharma that actually fueled this fire. And I will tell you, I live this nightmare too. And I know the former diversion head very well, Joe Ranazisi, who was the whistleblower in the DEA on 60 Minutes and, and Washington Post story. So we have 100 billion opioid pills that were dumped into America over you know, this nine-year period, I think it was 2006, 2014, Washington Post did a tremendous investigative story, and they highlighted this, and there was really no accountability on the manufacturers or the distributors. Yes, they got fined a lot of money, but fines are nothing for them. They're making multi-billions of dollars. They pay the fine, they go on. Now, the reason this is very important is because young kids that went to the doctor for a legitimate root canal were given a bottle of 50 or 100 oxy pills. And got addicted. Then they went out to the street, and this stuff is powerful, and they started you know, snorting heroin. And maybe the next step was they got a pill that had fentanyl, they died. So we all know those stories. But what we really don't talk about enough is the corruption within the system, because it's all about the money. Because what you have is you have, when I was an agent in the DEA Academy, like Murph, they always taught us, you got to go after the source of supply and the money launderers if you want to make an impact. So the idea is, is no matter where you start a case in the country, the lowest level, you got to bring it up to who's supplying it, take them out, hold them accountable. Well, how come then, here's a legitimate question I have, how come then when the DEA worked these cases on these corrupt doctors, some of them, or corrupt pharmacies that were selling this stuff out the back door, doing all this stuff, and then identified major manufacturers and major distributors that none of those top players were really ever indicted and went to jail. I don't understand that because they're, they're yeah, they're distributing important, legitimate pharmaceutical pills, but there's got to be corporate responsibility. And there's case after case where they could prove there's knowledge and intent to do harm. And it was all about the money. And then the corruption got in the middle. And a lot of these people got away with it. But at the same time, they fueled the opioid addiction to give the Colombians and then the Mexicans the ability to put white heroin on the street 
and now this deadly fentanyl. So it opened up the can of worms, and none of them went to jail. And it makes me very upset because without law and order and accountability on all Americans, you're not going to be able to accomplish your goals. Every member of the Sackler family from Purdue Pharma ought to be in jail right now for the shit they did with OxyContin, the way they foisted it on people. Look, they had that documentary. Um, um, Dope sick. Yeah. Michael Keaton did a great job. West Virginia, the way that they abused those people, the way right. they- and I lived at Morgan, by the way, in SOD, we had a section called OSI. We went after the internet pharmaceutical cases. We supported the field and we lived the nightmare of lack of prosecutions, submarining the, the efforts of the DEA warriors on the streets because of the, the cohesion of like attorneys that were looking for, let's just say, bigger jobs out there in the world when they left government. And they, they knew that if they worked aggressively against big pharma or big telco, they may be tainted on their resumes when they're trying to get a job as a partner. Well, look, I can tell you that having been on all three sides now, working in uh, the state and local government area, working with uh, outside from an industry standpoint, working with the federal government, there I've run into so many people. When I was doing stuff, Derek, and you'll know this too. A lot of people didn't like some of the technology companies or some of us, but you know what they want to be friends for? The closer they got to retirement and they saw the salary they were making versus the salary you were making, they started becoming friends with me. Yes. Said, Where was this friendship five years ago when we were trying to get shit done? You yeah. know and I got to tell you, only the people who were righteous and legitimate and sincere, like I'm going to have uh, – coffee next week with the guy that just punched out of the secret service. He's looking at a job at one of the companies I, I work with, I consult for, and I'll do that for him because this guy's sincere about it. He said, look, uh, you know, Hey, we met, etc." But those people who didn't like you and treated you like shit until the day they wanted a job, I got to tell you, anytime they sent me a resume, it went into the delete file. It got, you know, boom. It's like, wait a minute. Are you the same guy I could not get a meeting with for three years? And now all of a sudden you're my best friend. Yeah. Now, I know that story. We all live that in law enforcement does the same kind of stuff, too. But, you know, going back to that whole synthetic opioid situation, you know, what's really frightening right now, Morgan, which is not talked about enough in the press is and this is something I'm learning right now. So there's a class of drugs. Right. And again, I'm not a chemist. I'm not a diversion investigator. I'm just an old agent with common sense. This is there's a class now called New, and it's not new, but it, it, it's, it, it's something new to me. It's, it, it's called NPS, NPS, New Psychoactive Substances. And these substances are synthetically made. And what's happening now is that they're producing this class of NPS, which is called nitazines. Nitazines is a class of these synthetic opioids that, according to the experts, it's 10 to 20 times more powerful than fentanyl. And it's made in the same type of labs that fentanyl is made in, like in China and other places in the world. Well, now we're starting to see a lot of these autopsy results are revealing that they didn't die from fentanyl. They died from isonitazine or etonitazine or what they call pyro. And it might be pyronitazine. I forgot what the name is. I can't keep up with all these names. But the point of it is, is I personally believe, and this is just Derek Maltz's opinion, I have nothing to back this up other than good old common sense. I believe we're in the next phase 
of the destruction of the kids. As China has seen this successful plan emerge in our country, the cartels have taken over the day-to-day dirty work. They can get back to business, create the, the new substances that are now being sold on the dark net, on the internet. Up in Canada, they have operations all over Canada. And they're now making this stuff, and now this stuff is getting into the country. The other thing that's happening that we didn't talk about, which is very frightening, you know, you have now kids that are millennials that are going out on the internet and they're buying pill presses. They're buying the dyes. They're buying the ingredients that need to, the binding agents, they call it, right? And they go out, they watch a YouTube video on how to make a pill. They then buy these powdery substances from their local drug dealer. And they take it, they pour it into the, uh, the the pill press. Some of these pill presses that you buy that are very inexpensive can generate, let's say, seven to 10,000 pills an hour. If you sell the pill for $20 a pill, do the math. That's like $140,000 an hour. In a day, it's over a million dollars in pill sales. They know that the young kids are starting to take these pills. So even the millennials that don't want to go to work anymore in America... These college-educated kids are now starting to get into this pill production business. So the pills are not just being made in, in Mexico. They're being made in our, back rat, in our backyards. The DEA is seizing, seizing pill presses all over the country. And what's really frightening to me, some of these really smart kids, they're not going to buy it from their local drug dealer on the streets. They're going to get on the dark web, and they're going to buy right from these labs in China. They're going to get it delivered to P.O. boxes or whatever. They're going to then use that substance, which they have no idea what it is, to make these pills because they're trying to make money. And that is, if you go on to this, this show, America, America Greed, it's a phenomenal story. I use it in a lot of my presentations now because there was a special, the DEA and Homeland Security out in Utah made this amazing case on this guy that was doing exactly what I just described. And if you want to check out something really interesting, watch the little video clip of, of this thing, America Greed, American Greed. And it's going to put a whole new perspective in your brain about how big this problem really is. Just like when we saw the $207 million in Mexico City, like we talked earlier, it put a new like picture in my brain on how much bigger this problem is than we really know. So it's more than just the Chinese and it's more than just the Mexican cartels. It's now our own citizens looking to make money. Now, I don't know if I ever showed you guys this, but I actually bought this shirt online from Amazon. And I love Amazon, by the way. Keep calm and let fentanyl handle it. Oh, my God. Now, now I did this because I'll tell you what happened. I got a call from one of my friends. Actually, Murph, Sherry, our partner from OSL. Sherry, your partner from Bogota. Sherry from Atlanta called me. Yeah, I don't want to say a name, but thank you. Well, she's also been on our show. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. right. She was. I, I'm sorry, Murph. She called me because she got calls from these parents all pissed off that she works with and said, Derek, you got to check into this. Look what they're selling on Amazon. And I believed her, but I said, I can't talk about this until I actually do it myself. So I made the order myself. Yeah, Murph, I spent the $20 out of my own pocket. I didn't voucher it or anything. I bought this thing. I videotaped the arrival at my house on Amazon, opening up the bag and said, ladies and gentlemen, look what I just bought. Why is corporate America supporting the sale of this stuff? Now, I also am very fair. Jeff Bezos and these executives at Amazon, 
they're not aware of like their people selling this crap. They wouldn't stand for it. Amazon's a really awesome company. Thank God we have Amazon. But it just shows you how things happen. These internet providers, they you know, they're pushing out these sites have pill presses and the dyes. You buy this all online. You put your credit card in, it gets shipped to wherever you want. And you could get into this business. And there's so much stuff going on. You get Everybody gets lost in the noise. I want to circle back, though, and ask you something. I recall, see if you remember this episode, one of the, one of the classic cop shows was Dragnet, Jack Webb, Harry Morgan. And they were coming up with this new drug that there was no legislation for, that they had the uh, chemical compound for. So California had to pass emergency legislation to outlaw Lysergic acid diethylamide, LSD, because when LSD was first introduced, the laws were written because they looked at it from a chemical compound standpoint. The reason I say that is just what you were talking about, the nitazines and everything else. The problem with these designer drugs and the laws sometimes, right, is that you can just change a few things. It changes the chemical makeup, and it's technically not against the law because the chemical compound is not illegal. Right. You said that a lot better than I could have explained it, honestly. You're much brighter than me. You're more articulate. You're better looking. You have more hair than me. I'll go with the more hair. Yes, yes. I got more hair than you, Derek. Morgan, all can decide. I got more hair than Derek. Yeah, you got more hair than me, you old bum, you. Anyway, uh, yes, you're right, Morgan, and that's been a problem forever, like ecstasy. MDMA was a big problem. Back, like, let's say, year 2000, we were getting bombarded by ecstasy pills, MDMA. We had the rave clubs all over America. And the kids were using that stuff, getting sick, in some cases dying. And we had no idea like what was happening at that time. We didn't know the Israeli organized crime monsters were involved with that. And they were making this stuff in the Netherlands and other places. And the laws in America, no one was getting prosecuted. It wasn't fitting into the box, Morgan, like you just said. These synthetic drugs, you know, our laws are so antiquated, and and that's what was happening. But ultimately, we did get some congressional support, and they they made much stiffer, you know, sentencing on ecstasy and MDMA, and then we started seeing it kind of fading away. And it was actually a really good example of what you're talking about. Um, but the same thing now is happening. It happens with all these compounds, all these fentanyl analogs. And I'm no expert. I'm not a chemist. But yeah, they change a couple of molecules. They change the formula. And then it's no longer considered a controlled substance. And this is the same thing we're dealing with now with the nitazines and these other things. DEA has used emergency scheduling authority to get this stuff, you know, controlled, but it's limited. And I think there's a shelf life. I don't understand it all, but it's, it's causing another part. Look what happened in New York City as another example. When you talk about antiquated laws, they seized 165 pounds of methamphetamine from cartel operatives in New York City. and the special prosecutor in New York, who I know very well, she's very good, Bridget Brennan, they had to let the guys out because the laws were so antiquated. They, I forgot what it was. It had something to do with being considered controlled substances as opposed to narcotics. It was something weird in the antiquated laws that they, the judge could not hold them on bail. And they were out. So there's all this stuff that happens because of the antiquated laws, because our Congress doesn't care about most of the members in Congress does not care about the public safety and security. They care about their pocketbooks and their bank accounts because they want they to make about as much getting money. reelected. 
Yeah, reelected. You said it even better than me. And so, and, I'm, and I don't mean everyone in Congress. There's certainly some really great American patriots. But by the way, one thing I want to tell you, because it fits into everything we said, I was at a congressional committee meeting with hundreds of congressional members, not the staffers, the members. And I was up there with former Homeland Security. Um, well, I was up there with Tom Holman from ICE, Mark Morgan from CBP, Brandon Jug. I'm sorry, Judd, the current Border Patrol president, and, uh, and another guy from immigration when, when President Trump was in office. And we were talking about, you know, all these things that were happening, right? And we were putting it on the table. And Mike McCall is the first one or second one up to uh, actually uh, make a point. And, he, and, he, and I always use this line, so I'm giving him credit. He said, you know, guys, I got to tell you, I was the head of the Homeland Security Committee and I've watched this stuff emerge. But here's what I would say. This is selling fentanyl to America is a great foreign policy for China. And he kind of summed up everything that we're talking on this podcast. If you really pull back the onion right now, peel back the onion. That's the summary of everything we talked about. Okay. China is trying to destroy this place. And they're very complex, very sophisticated. There recently was a story that was breaking news about three weeks ago. I was on radio with Sean Hannity talking about this. And that is you have massive amounts of property being purchased in America, okay, from the Chinese business people. And a lot of these transactions, and according to Christopher Ray, I believe he said this is a big national security threat because they're buying property next to our well, military bases. It's happening up in North Dakota right now. They want to purchase 300 acres of prime farmland that is very close to a very uh, an Air Force base. And they said there's no way this facility can process the amount of corn it would take to justify buying that much land. Right. So what they're doing is they're using they have billions of dollars in properties being purchased. Most of it's in cash. But what nobody's really put together, and I put it out on the Dan Bongino show as well. People got to start realizing that the millions of dollars that these kids are picking up from the drug traffickers are going to the Chinese businessmen and using that cash to buy these properties and real estate around America. There is a direct connection to the fentanyl and methamphetamine and cocaine proceeds in America going to Chinese businessmen to buy all these properties in real estate. That's a fact. We have, we have houses in Colorado that are indoor grow operations in beautiful million-dollar home neighborhoods, and the Chinese are operating these state-of-the-art grow operations with you know, marijuana that has like THC over 20%, and they're, they're sending the marijuana all over America from these grow operations, and they're paying cash for the houses. How do I know that? Because I talked to the DEA that saw this, and they sent me pictures, and I was blown out of my seat. I didn't know this was going on. So it just, it just gets crazier by the minute. It, it really does. And so when, you know, when is America going to wake up? You know, we're still the leading consumer country in the world of illegal narcotics. Well, there's a reputation we're certainly not proud yeah, of, sure. but it's the truth. And what happens here, we have a lot of, of uh, uh, podcast listeners outside the United States here. If it's happening here, if it's not already happening in your country, it's coming. Murph, thank you for bringing another great point. Did you see the recent historic level fentanyl seizure in Australia? Yeah. No. no I didn't and see that. that is coming from Canada because you have 
the amazing networks of Chinese triad guys with labs in Canada that are now sending this stuff over to Australia. Unbelievable. And you know what? The other thing, too, I've always pushed back against. I said, if you want to start solving some of these issues with China, I just simply called it reciprocity. Because if you look at their laws about letting our students go over there, just even the social media apps. Do you know that Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, they're all banned in China? But yet we allow TikTok to be used in the United States. Hey, look, the old old farm boy saying what's good for the goose, good for the gander. If we can't have our stuff over there, you can't have your stuff over there. If we can't buy 300 acres of farmland, you can't buy 300 acres of farmland. The policy is really very simple. We got to quit being such an open country to everything. And before before we somebody sends hate mail and stuff, look, uh, the the whole premise of immigration was that you're adding something to the country. You're not taking away from it. And so if you come to the United States, you have to be adding something to it. And if you do, God love you, whatever your country you're from. But we're not here to solve every other country's problems and send their ills. We learned that lesson with the Marilito boat lift right out of Cuba. You know, mm-hmm. we got every we got the dregs of society out of Cuba, and Miami paid a huge price in crime, murder, everything else for it. We're finding that too. So, you know, if we really start looking at it, say to my point, my little uh, limited uh, view of the world here. It's if we just make it about reciprocity, fine. You want X, we want X. If we can't get X, you don't get X. Simple mm-hmm. as that. And yeah, it's simple. Yeah, I like that. We are prohibited from being in China, from buying land in China, from doing... A, in fact, you got companies that operate in China. They used to call it the forced technology transfer. You'd have to share your intellectual property with them, and then they do these three things. We call it the three R's. They rob you of the technology, they replicate it, and then they replace you. Um, and then, then now if somebody ends up selling your widget through China back into the United States. And so, uh, you know, we, we could go off on this for quite a long time. We're going to have to, you know what we're going to have to do? We're definitely going to have to do a follow-up with you, Derek. And I think, you know what, uh, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Murph and I have talked about this. We want to get victim stories. We want to get a couple families to come on and talk. Oh, easy. That could be done easily. I have my networks. Actually, like I said, it fits in perfectly because I'll tell you why. They just want to tell their stories to save lives. That's their motivation, okay? They're not looking to make money off this stuff. They just want to make sure they could save lives, and they could tell you the stories. I will facilitate the best and brightest families to get to your podcast, and it's unlimited. I have an unlimited supply well, of them. Hey, don't, don't say the best and brightest because if somebody's not on the podcast, they'll go, what, Derek doesn't think I'm the best and brightest? <laughs> That's <laughs> true. Good oh, my God, you're so smart. You know what's really funny about that? You say that, but I do have to watch. Sometimes my heart moves faster than my brain, and that's exactly true. When I say the best and brightest, I mean the ones that actually are so impactful and that are comfortable about talking about their tragedy. Because yeah, not everybody has gotten to that level. Look, even with you today, talking about your brother, you know, yeah. you had to take a break, man. Yeah, it, tearing up, man. People, uh, there are some people who are simply not at that uh, state of readiness yet to talk about. And by the impact. way, because you brought it up, I just want to say this. Losing a brother hurts, but it's nothing like losing a kid. Okay. I can't imagine the pain from that. And and my brother died, Morgan, my brother died how many years ago? 19 years ago, and I still teared up talking about him. Can you imagine these families? Their kid just died in the bedroom. They found a 13-year-old blue, and they walked in the bedroom. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this, and I highly recommend you watch it today. It's called Dead on Arrival. It's 20 minutes. 
And not only do I recommend you watching that, I recommend that you share it with your friends and your family and your kids and take 20 minutes to watch it because it has four of my family members that I work with routinely. They tell their powerful stories and it was a tremendous production. It's, it's done by, you know, true professionals in California. And I think all your viewers, I'm saying your listeners should actually listen to this and watch this dead on arrival. And I get nothing out of it. I just know how powerful it is. I've actually extracted, you know, some of that material. I show it to families. I show it to people because it really made a difference for me to further understand what's happening here. And I just looked that up. You can find that on YouTube. So anybody can find it. Right. Exactly. It's powerful stuff and it's only 20 minutes. So it's worth it. Yeah. And, you know, I just wanted to put a, a fine point on what you said about your brother. It's not, but, you know, the difference between your brother and these kids, your brother died in the service of our country doing what he loved. You know, d- these kids never got the chance to That's do that. Right. They Great never point. got the chance to serve their country, to become what it is they were possible to be. And you're right. That's what makes it tough. It's it, You're right. I, I've never lost uh, a child, never lost a brother or sister. Um but having been a detective, having worked those cases, you go to the suicides or the infant death or the overdoses and stuff, you know, the impact on the family. And the thing with kids is that, you know, they could have their entire future was ahead of them. Their entire life mm-hmm. was ahead of them. And that's what's being robbed from them by this scourge of fentanyl. So, so, so let me just tell you this quick one. And I highly recommend this, this family in California, the Didier family, Laura and Chris Didier. And, and they're very actively involved. She's been all over national news. She does a lot of speaking out there in California. And she has, she's part of an organization called Song for Charlie, which is one of the top and has a great website. So I highly recommend you go on Song for Charlie. And Laura and her husband, Chris, tell the story. Her son, Zach, was 17 years old. And this kid was an athlete. He was a great kid. Everyone can relate to it. He was going to either like Stanford or UCLA. Until that day came when one pill, you know, killed him. And, and the way they tell the story, when I saw it first on, on local news, you know, like a year ago, whenever it was, I, I was so impacted by it. And this was another one of those examples. Like I talked about Lisa Dean and April and Virginia and all these. I can go on and on all day long. But everyone has a unique story to it. And uh, so, yeah, getting families is not going to be an issue. All right. Well, Man, I, I tell you, I'm not exhausted from the standpoint of, uh, you know, physically. I'm just exhausted from the standpoint of emotionally and mentally just listening to all of this stuff. And it's mm-hmm. like, um, if there was one reason, one of the reasons we do long form, and and Derek, you'll appreciate this too, having done stuff on the news for a long time too. What's the longest you usually get on network television? About four minutes. Four minutes if you're lucky. And half the time, it's the host or the anchor asking yes. you a question and doing it. Yeah, that's a great point. Or you have the panel and you get your one question. Mm-hmm. I, I refuse to do panels anymore. When they say, hey, we want you on with three other people, I say, I'll pass. Yeah. Well, I just say I'll, I'll finish off with one thing and I'll send this graphic to you guys just to have it because it's another daily. I already, you already know by now I'm obsessive compulsive and, compulsive and I'm also very visual guy. And, and Murph probably hasn't even seen this because this was done my last week on the job. So this isn't meant to be um, like a negative thing. The red line is representing the complexity of the threats to this country. And the green line is our ability to deal with it. And most of that is self-imposed. Like we have the capabilities and abilities, 
but the bureaucrats and all of the other things we could talk about all day. Now, guess what's happening? The gap between good and evil is growing daily. This impacts every American. So if you look at the timeline, I deliberately took the time out because it's just every day this is growing. So we try to motivate law enforcement and people say, your job is to kind of shrink that gap. How are we going to get that gap coming closer together? But unfortunately, Morgan, as you know better than we'll ever know, with the encryption and the technology that's used out there and the laws and bureaucracy of the U.S. government, it's hard to keep up with these people. They have unlimited budgets, no bureaucracy, no lawyers to slow them down. So that graphic is also a summation of everything we just talked about. Yeah. And, you know, for the folks who didn't see that, it's the red line is going up and to the right. The green line is going down and to the right. So that gap's getting wider. But I'll tell you, I'm going to send this to you, Derek. This is something after 9-11, I was doing some work on classified stuff uh, in JCAG, uh, CIFA, the Counterintelligence Field Activity Joint Counterintelligence Assessment Group. We're looking at how do we do this. The Actually, the Pentagon came out with a great memo when it was called Spiral Development. And the thing you're talking about is that gap. And they looked at it from the gap as what's the threat was going up and to the right. And then our capabilities to address it was going down and to the right. And they said, we've got to come up with an idea that at least closes the gap that the needs and requirements can... And so they called it spiral development to say, we don't need to wait until something's perfectly done. We'll release it. There'll be an iteration of it. And within that iteration, there are spirals. So it might be 40%. Let's release it. Might be 50%. Let's release it. Because what happens is it bends that curve. It bends them closer together. And then you release your next iteration and spirals within that. So if you think about it, you've got a set of spirals now, like going up and to the right. So you, what you're doing is you're trying to bend those curves, you know, both ways, bring them closer together. I'll share that with you because it was a great, it was called spiral acquisition development, but it's something that guided the use of technology and weapon systems and stuff like that. There could be a, a, a comparison, an analog that we could use for uh, this thing too, because if that gap keeps going, you reach a point to where it's not recoverable. In other words, there, you cannot spend your way out of it and hire your way out of it to close that gap. Right. And that's unfortunately what I feel. I felt it eight years ago when I left and I feel it more today than ever because we're dividing law enforcement. We're not supporting law enforcement. And, you know, people are leaving that are very experienced. And so that's a whole other topic for another day. But I really appreciate, you know, all this time. I mean, obviously, I didn't eat. I, I barely had anything to drink here. Uh, I didn't have to take a bathroom break because I get excited to talk about this, especially I know you guys do tremendous work getting all these cool stories out there to the public. Many of the cases that I was fortunate enough to be involved in as the boss at SOD have been talked about, and I thank you guys for pushing out that important work, because that was one of my goals. I've told Murph, and I think I told you, one of my goals has always been, what can I do to give back and to brag about the great cases that all those patriots had been doing over the years? And you know, I do the best that I can, but you guys have a good platform to do it, so keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Derek. It's been, it's, uh, I mean, for me, it's a personal honor to have you on here because we've been friends a long time and, and I've always admired you. We haven't always gotten along. We've had our differences, but you know what? We're still friends. And that's what kills me about the public today. If you disagree with somebody, all of a sudden you hate each other. That's bullshit. Yeah, I mean, we can argue and yell at each other, but then I'm giving you a hug the next day. Absolutely. Because we're not always right. We're all stubborn. We think we're right. And we got to 
share the dirty laundry and then move forward. Oh, I'm sorry. All I can think oh. of, Murph, and I'm diming you out here. You would tell me you'd go in when you were the horse holder for uh, Derek. You'd go in there. <laughs> He'd give you 20 things to do, and you'd basically ignore 18 of them and come back in later and go, yeah, 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 yeah. We got that covered. And then because you knew so well how Derek worked, you go, yep. let's focus well, on the important things. That is true. I would tell you 100% under oath. But he did it with a smile all the time. <laughs> he never got mad. That's the thing. Like, I never saw him mad. Other than, like, later on, we had a couple of things. But he was never, ever mad. And even if he was mad, he was happy the next day yeah. or the next hour, whatever. It's not personal. It's business. Yeah. And one th- I mean, wh- I'll give you an example. I, every morning, I'd have to go with Derek. I, well, we had the 830 call with headquarters. And thankfully, we didn't have to go down to headquarters. We could do it on a conference call. And so I would bring a cup of coffee in and I'd bring Derek a cup of coffee. And, you know, after about a week, he's like, your coffee sucks. Well, then we'll go get your own damn coffee then. There, Abby. <laughs> you know, but, but one, thing, one thing I want to do here is, is we've, we've only done this with a few episodes and with your permission, yep. Derek, we would like to dedicate this episode to your brother, Michael Maltz, uh, and to watch March 23rd, 2003, a, a true American hero and a real American patriot. So uh, today's episode is in honor of your brother. Mike. I appreciate that. And the only thing I would ask as we close here is anything you do for when you talk about the fentanyl, please visit at least the Lost, Lost Voices of Fentanyl. I'm going to send you some collages. You guys will have them. I will send you other material just to keep it near and dear to your heart and just keep plugging away in support of those families. And I will get you to family members to talk to you and tell you the stories because that's going to be powerful stuff. Yeah, uh, the, the stories is what does it. Well, hey, look, um, we can't thank you enough. Uh, and again, Murph, you beat me to it. And I, him and I have done this enough now. You know what we were thinking. But I will tell you this, Derek, your name has been taken, not necessarily in vain, but you have come up on many podcast episodes on these cases. So oh, uh, yeah. from Victor Boot to Chapo Guzman, you know, and stuff like that. So, but, uh, but I will tell you, to a person, everybody talked about you as the best boss or one of the best bosses they ever worked for. They loved working for you because you always said, well, I want his picture on my wall. Where's his picture? I want his picture on my wall. Where's, where's Victor boot. I want his. That's what Zach said. Where's my picture. You know why? And can I tell you since you brought it up? Cause it's actually very funny. Yeah. So when I was at SOD, we had, and we didn't talk too much about the bilateral investigations teams, but I built up five. I was inherited one group. I inherited one group. Joe Keefe had the vision. It wasn't my vision to go after these international bad guys to prosecute them in the U.S. I then was able to get five groups because of all the successes that my guys around, not only in SOD, but in DEA. But I was spending so much money on these operations, well beyond what the average DEA SAC spent, because my budget was a little bit higher. But here's the thing. I started getting nervous. Like, am I getting a bang for the buck? Like, I'm signing, you know, a $50,000, you know, document or $25,000 document. What am I getting out of this? So my psyche was saying, I'm going to create banners in my office. So every day when I was a little concerned about the spending, I knew there was an end game. And then I would tell the guys, you cannot just arrest them. You cannot just indict them. You have to prosecute them, convict them, and put them in jail for as long as you can. If you don't do that, it's a failure. So this is the sad part. What you just brought up is another psychotic obsessive whatever behavior <laughs> but 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 dude the thing is is that it made me feel like we were making progress like holy crow hey there's Victor Boot if you got a problem when we just spent a million dollars or whatever it was to get him 
Go talk to the president's, uh, you know, Juan Zarate, who's his director for security and terrorism that said he's a number one threat. We need to take him down. Go talk to him and say, is he worth a million dollars? So it's funny you bring that up because my office was like a shrine with all these bad guys. Yes, it was it actually, was. it was cool. <laughs> but again, that also proved, which a lot of people don't know, the power of the DEA around the world, because none of those cases were done just because of my guys at SOD. It was done because the relationships with the counterparts were worldwide and DEA could easily go to those countries and, and have credibility to open the doors. And like I said, Murph worked in Colombia and the successes that they had and still have is because of relationships that were built up for many years. So anyway, I appreciate that. There's, there's the story, the story behind the pictures. <laughs> yeah, we could tell stories all day, Morgan, just so you know. Oh, I, I know that. And that's why we're going to have to bring this one to a close because we want to save you we're going to do some more. Trust me, we're going to do some more, especially I think the fentanyl uh, is, is going to be one of the defining issues of our lifetime that we've got to get a handle on. But we can't say enough. Like I said, everybody we talked to just talked about you in glowing terms. And this is obvious today. If one thing everybody's gotten out of this today, if nothing else, is Derek can talk longer than I can without taking a breath. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I could talk all damn day. But listen, guys, have a great day. Appreciate everything that you do. And we'll talk soon. All right. You finish up, Murph. You give and I'll give our closing, but, you know, go ahead. Final words. No, just uh, just to reiterate that it's been an honor and a pleasure. Something we've been plotting for uh, over a year now is to bring you've been on the original list of guests we wanted to bring on Game of Crimes. We've been on the air now since June of 2021. Uh, and so to finally get you on here, the whole question was, what are we going to save him for, though? Because he's got. Uh, I keep a list of potential interviews that we're going to do. And I think Morgan does also. And your name is on like four or five different operations. But then this came along about fentanyl and there's nothing more important than what's yep. going on in our country today. The other stuff is history. We love to hear about it. Our listeners love to hear about these cases that they might've read about or they've never heard about. So they love the guests that we bring on, but this is so important that, you know, this is what we wanted to, the first interview with Derek Maltz was to be about fentanyl, uh, we love our listeners love to hear about your your background, your career, your dad, your brother, your children, you know, the successes they've had, the the lady that you're married to, who I have the utmost respect for, Patty. Uh, the fact that she high school up sweetheart, with, by the way, you know that, right? 1980. Yeah. And that she's put up with your shit for all these years. <laughs> she sits on a freaking pedestal. And by the way, for the record, for the record, growing up in a dysfunctional household with a father that never was home. I lived alone in high school in an apartment as a uh, as a sophomore, and it was Patty's family that helped get me on a straight path and make sure I did well in school and go to college and everything like that. And I give them a lot of credit. My wife has been by my side from day one. So she, thanks for bringing that up. She's been a, she's been a saint since I met her, and she still is to this day. So our regards to her, love her to death. Um, I just and I know she's going right to heaven. You could say it. She's got an automatic, direct <laughs> path to heaven dealing with me for all these years. That goes without saying. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I can't tell you what it means to have you on here. So thank, thank you, Thank you, brother. All right. You two don't go anywhere. Hang on. Everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. We warned you. We tried to warn you. <laughs> you we told you if anybody 
went off the rails and drove off the road, you know, or anything. We are not responsible for that. But I will tell you, uh, I, I, cause like we were talking before on our, uh, Patreon episodes, Murph and I have a division of duties. He does a lot of the, he works a lot with the guests, does a lot of the pre-calls. I do a lot of the back-end stuff editing. So when I take a look at these files and I look at how long Derek talked and how long we talked, it's a record, folks, because <laughs> this guy has beat me. Let me tell you what, and if you're not fired up after listening to Derek, go back and listen to it again. Something's wrong with you. I mean, this guy, <clears throat> he is so passionate about what he does. He's motivational. And that's what everybody loves about it. And you know what he talked about this, uh, the faces of fentanyl. Yep. You know, they had that rally up in uh, uh, Washington, D.C. since we did the interview with Derek. And I don't believe the president came out to address anybody. He probably sent a little message out. But, you know, where's your freaking priorities? And I, this isn't political. I'm not making a political statement here. This is what's important. Over 100,000 people die a year, folks. It's not political. I guarantee out of those 100,000 deaths... They're all race, sex, age, gender, creed, Republican, Democrat, independent, doesn't matter. We're killing everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, bringing out the rainbow colors now to make freaking fentanyl pills look like candy for children. And hiding them inside Legos. It's just, it's outrageous. It's outrageous. But hope you enjoyed this interview with Derek. And we warned you. <laughs> get in, sit down, I told shut you, up, get face on, goggles, right? a face shield, just... <laughs> This guy, I'm not kidding. His his history of how his dad introduced him to law enforcement. His dad's a legend, you know. And now Derek is a legend. Yeah. Uh, and we mentioned he was on the Dr. Phil show, and you know what he did? He's on there promoting the dangers of fentanyl. He's not on there trying to promote himself or it's, his company he worked for or anything else. It's yep. you know the other thing too is that um, yeah, I mean with Derek there is no middle ground. It's on or it's off. And when he is on. He, this the, you can tell this is this drives him. We talked about his brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about the malts challenge, like you say, the faces of fentanyl. Some things it, it, to this day it still impacts him. I mean, it was just awesome the fact that when he was over in Afghanistan, he was able to go visit the place where his brother died. Oh, and it was a surprise too. You know that was the cool thing about it. But that shows you how much respect that everybody in DEA had for Derek, as well as other law enforcement agencies. Hell, as well as as Washington D.C. Yeah. So it's a uh, we're probably going to have Derek on because he was involved in so many different things. When we were, you know, two years ago, when we were putting our list together of potential interviewees, I think Derek made the list about five times. Yeah, he was like, well, Derek was involved in this. Derek was involved in this. Derek oh, was crazy. In this. Yeah. Uh, you know what? And he doesn't hold back. That's the best thing about him. You know, he's just out there and he calls it like it is. Like, you got to respect a person like that. Yeah. And look, you got to respect somebody that at his age, he's retired, that he's still going 100 miles an hour on this stuff. Yeah. Like That's I say, with Derek... There will never be, there's no slowing down. Derek will go this way until one day there is no more Derek. And, uh, you, <laughs> well, you, I hope you heard the part about when he was on the sports field when his kids were playing lacrosse. Because <laughs> my son in law went to that high school where his, where Derek's kids went. And he said, Oh, everybody knew Mr. Maltz. He was running up down the sidelines. He was louder than the coaches. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, just passion. I mean, passion overload. So yeah, and Derek, that's something think, that defines him. Yeah. We're, Look we up the word are, passion in the dictionary and it says, see a picture of Derek Maltz. Absolutely. We're certainly not talking bad about him. I, like I said a couple times, love this guy like a brother. Um, keep going where you're going, brother. We will support you 100%. 100%. All right. Well, guys, we hope you enjoyed that. If you did, 
uh, head on over to Apple and Spotify. Just give us those five stars. It's magic. We don't know how it works. We just know it does. Head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for more info on the show. Uh, we put in the description the link to uh, the Faces of Fentanyl and the Malts Challenge, so you can go check those things out. Follow us on social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Head on over to PayPal.com. Use our email, Podcast at gmail.com or PayPal.me slash Crimes, whatever it makes it easier for you. But we always close out by saying, you know, where you got to be, where you got to be. I'm telling you, Steve, I know where they got to be. They got to be on patreon.com slash game of crimes because you're about to tell them we got so much content on there, even more than we have on our regular podcast. It's just awesome. I mean, <laughs> what can I say? Or what can you say now? Uh, I can tell you, you want to hear the section we call 199. What's your emergency? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, just, we're going to have to change fun. Murph's phone around because of that now. <laughs> but you, I, seriously, you'd like that because it, it's, it, it will test your investigative abilities. Is the phone call that's being made to the 911 number, is it legit or is it a criminal reporting his ill, uh, the bad things he's been doing? So that's just one of the things. We have a case of the month on there. We've started doing a monthly live stream where we'll come on on a Sunday afternoon and you can meet us on here. And, you know, we actually get to see each other. We'll answer your questions. We'll talk about things with the podcast, future plans, whatever you want to talk about. There's just so much on Patreon. So come over and give us a shot at it. Let us know what you think. You got ideas on how we could do things better. We're always open to suggestions. Yeah. And and we, we enjoy, by the way, we, we, we really, truly enjoy it. it. It's so much fun. Um, and we're humbled by the fact that some people spend their hard earned time and money mm-hmm. and, you know, you can replace money. You can't replace time. So when you spend the kind of time with us, we're very honored. So guys just head on over there, uh, patreon.com slash game of crimes. So, Hey, thus into the reading for this episode, Derek Maltz, the man on a mission to remove and eradicate fentanyl from the face of this earth. So keep it up. But hey, guys, but again, we want to thank you guys. This was a dangerous game. This is a dangerous thing. And we're glad you guys played along. So thank you once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes. 